morning. I'll be reading Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and verses 25 through 36 from the English Standard Version. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, starting with verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much for that reading, Mark. 
And also, thanks for the, to the session for the invitation to preach God's word to you this morning and an opportunity to look into this part of Romans with you. And what I'd like to do this morning is cover all of Romans chapter 11. I think it's important to understand in this section of the book of Romans that began with chapter 9, the apostle is dealing with a vexing, even a, a painful problem. And that is the problem of Israel rejecting the Messiah. That unbelief was a huge problem for people like Paul. He was a Jew brought up in the Jewish community. They longed for the appearance of the Messiah who would come and make everything right, finally. But when the Messiah came, what happened? Most of the Jews, including Paul at first when he was Saul, didn't recognize the Messiah, actually plotted to have him crucified, and then afterward persecuted his followers. Paul's feelings about this were intense, and it's important to catch the emotional dynamic of just how he felt. Back in chapter 9, the beginning of this section, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's because of the unbelief of his family members, of his countrymen. It was a huge problem. In chapter 9, he dealt with the issue that the Jews' rejecting of the Messiah seemed to cast a doubt on God's promises being fulfilled. Does God keep his promises to bless his people? And then in our chapter this morning, it's the idea of God rejecting his people and the awful specter that if he rejected his people once, Who's to say he won't reject us who are following him? These are enormous, difficult issues. And I like to see Romans 9 through 11, especially our chapter this morning, Romans 11, as something like a psalm that deals with the sole pain of observing something going on around you that you can't understand. And it's causing you problems and trouble for your faith. How do you work through that? That's what Romans 11 is doing. Like many of the Psalms, it ends up with praise, with full resolution of that problem. Now, let's acknowledge that many of us, most of us, we don't have the same struggle exactly that Paul did. The Jewish people's rejection of the Christ is a very old phenomenon. We're used to it by now. We should be concerned, though, with the Jewish people. We should love them. We should grieve for the terrible persecutions that they have endured throughout history. We should long for them to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Anti-Semitism should not even be named among God's people. It's such a terrible thing. But that wrestling of Paul with the unbelief of the Jews, let's acknowledge that is not what we're wrestling with, you and I, this morning. 
So I want us to think about a secondary application of this passage, and that is one that should hit closer to home for you and me. And that is how sometimes we suffer a huge letdown with how we experience church and the working of God in our day. For one example, when I was a young pastor called to a struggling little church, I had idealistic dreams for this church. I thought God would use my ministry to revitalize it. I was praying for the success of the ministry of the word, and I thought, of course, God will answer those prayers exactly the way I imagine he ought to answer them. But they were not answered in that way. And I was demoralized and disillusioned with the experience of church being so profoundly disappointing. My wife and I, she'll back me up on this, often on Sunday nights, we would feel empty and wonder together, has God forgotten us? Has God rejected us? Something of the way Paul writes in Romans 11. Well, what about you? What has been the hardest thing you've had to wrestle with in your experience with a church? Think about that thing, about that experience. Maybe you haven't had it yet, but if you haven't, I can promise you, at some point there will be a profound disappointment that you experience with the church. What do you do about that? The courageous German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who opposed the Nazis in Germany, he wrote a little book called Life Together. And in that book, he speaks of Christians having what he calls a wish dream for Christian community. And that is a vision of great things that we ought to experience in the church. And he warns us that our wish dreams for the church will lead to trouble for us. This is what he says. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian church, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize that. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. That's what Bonhoeffer writes. He actually says that if we are fortunate, we will come to a great disillusionment with ourselves as well as brothers and sisters in the church with us. God wants to do something in our lives by exploding these wish dreams. So here's my main point for you this morning. Let's replace wish dreaming with doxology. That's the ultimate point that we'll come to in Romans chapter 11. Now, I acknowledge that this is a lot to cover in one sermon. I didn't even have the heart to ask Mark to read the whole chapter, so we read a couple of excerpts from it. 
And we'll go fairly rapidly through this chapter, and we'll do it in six sections, a six-point sermon. Uh, the, the suits at Westminster Seminary say, don't do that. It's got to be a three-point sermon. Well, to help you with this, if you're into calculating how much time the first point will suggest you'll endure for the next five, don't do that. These points will be of varying length. So this will have an end that might come sooner than you had hoped. All right, the first point, remember the remnant. God preserves a remnant. This is the message of verses 1 through 6, and he points to the Old Testament experience of Elijah that is very vivid, a great story of a mighty prophet who burned with indignation against the idolatry of Israel. And it comes to this tremendous climax where he offers a challenge to the prophets of Baal to meet him on Mount Carmel. And then let's see what God answers with fire. And so Elijah invites the prophets of Baal to go first. And here they build their sacrificial offering. And then they begin to call on their God to consume it. And they yell, and they scream, and they dance, and they cut themselves, and Elijah walks back and forth, and he makes fun of them, and he says, where's your God? Has he fallen asleep? Maybe he went to relieve himself. He has a lot of fun with what they're doing, and they utterly fail. There's nothing but silence. And then Elijah says, well, it's my turn, and so he orders that buckets of water be dumped all over his sacrificial offering. So there's no doubt that this is going to be a supernatural act of God. No trickery. And he calls upon God to turn the hearts of the people back. And as his prayer finished, fire descends from heaven and consumes the offering and it licks up all the water. And the people bow and say, Jehovah, he is God. Elijah sees the great reformation happening. He orders the prophets of Baal killed. What a triumph. And then he goes back to the city. And what does he find but wicked Queen Jezebel is still in control and she delivers a threat to him, swearing that she will do to Elijah what he did to the prophets of Baal. And what happens to him? His heart sinks. He loses all nerve. He runs. He runs a long way into the wilderness. And there, drained emotionally and physically, he says, Oh Lord, I'm the only one left. Let me die. I'm no better than my father's. It's over. I am finished. There is someone hitting absolutely rock bottom because things didn't turn around the way he expected them to. And Paul says, what is God's reply to him? Now, don't miss the wonder of this. God replied to Elijah. He takes his depression and his complaint seriously. 
He doesn't say, Elijah, man up. You shouldn't even be talking like this. No, God answers his question, his complaint, with something meaningful. And that is, I have preserved for myself 7,000. These are the people whom God foreknew. That's a crucial distinction. What it meant is that within the ethnic nation of Israel, there was a true elect people, a people foreknown, that is, foreloved by God. This is the remnant, and that's not a bad number. When you're thinking all you've got is one, 7,000 is pretty good. And the way these people were known, they would not bow the knee to Baal. I love that description. That is, they had backbone. They had resistance. And it didn't matter what the surrounding culture was telling them. They would stand for Jehovah. Now, during the COVID lockdown, church was very difficult for most of us. I know it was for us. We experienced this lack of connection with people. First of all, the strangeness of doing church over Zoom. And then after a couple of months of that, we opened up again with people with their faces masked and sitting with social distance. And the whole thing was weird. And you wondered, what on earth is going on? Could anything be more barren than this spiritual landscape? That's the way I was feeling. What I didn't know at the time in our little church is that some people were listening to the services that were on Zoom and then on YouTube. Some of these people we didn't even know about. And one day they showed up at church. And one of them had a really impressive, dramatic story. It was a woman who was a physician who had never really pursued faith in Christ before. And she was wrestling with the demands of her job in the hospital and the edicts that were coming down from the government and that violated her conscience as a physician. And she was drawing strength, new strength, week by week from the ministry of the word and the worship of the people of God. And she was being helped and strengthened And as she went through being fired for her convictions, it looked to me like God doing it again, preserving a remnant and doing it in such an impressive way, someone who would not bow the knee to Baal. So when things are looking dismal and you're wrestling with what's going on in the church, remember, God is always preserving a remnant. Second point in verses 7 through 10, know that this problem of the Jews' rejection of the Messiah was not an accident out of the control of God, but in fact a judgment that God had promised in Scripture. In verses 7 through 10, Paul quotes Isaiah 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, 
and Psalm 69. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. He's saying that this is not something that is a tragic accident. This is something that was a judgment, in fact, that God was closing their eyes in a judicial kind of hardening because they had rejected him in unbelief over and over again. And so it asserts the truth that God is yet in charge. Don't think things are spinning out of control. Then the third thing, God has a purpose in it. Look at verse 11 and 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? God's purpose in the Jews' rejection of the Messiah is to send the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, to save multitudes of them, and then cause Israel to be jealous so that they turn to Jesus. Now, there's some lively debate on this chapter and what it means, what it says about the future of ethnic Israel, and we might disagree on our interpretation of this, and we can do that in a friendly way, but I'll let you know, I don't think that there's any way to understand this passage other than a promise that there will be a reversal of what has been, to this point, a general rejection by the Jewish people of Christ. There will be a dramatic reversal so that they embrace Christ with something of the same absolute intensity with which they've rejected him. Paul pointed out not every single solitary Israelite rejected Christ. He himself is an example of someone who came to faith in Jesus. But just as there was an almost total rejection of Jesus, there will be an almost total acceptance of him at some point in the future. That would be wonderful to see. And as you look around at your culture and things go from bad to worse, there will be something that will go from bad to great. It will be so great that it will be, as Paul describes, like life from the dead. I agree with the commentator John Murray who says that's not about the resurrection at the end of history. It is about a revival so stunning that it will feel like life from the dead. So the good news is that when events swirling around are, are so troubling to God's people, know that God is moving the progress of the gospel toward a brilliant, wonderful conclusion. Whether you and I are around to see that is an open question. But the fact that there is something wonderful coming should be beyond debate. Now, what do you think Paul means by making his fellow Jews jealous 
and so saving some of them. Let me try an illustration for this. Uh, and as I tell it, rest assured that I first cleared it with my wife, if you begin to feel uncomfortable for her. Yeah, it's a story of how when we first met, uh, assigned to a small group in a, the same church, I asked her out on a couple of dates. And then I just passively let the relationship go along with the discipleship group. And I was frankly clueless. I could have been in those days, I hope not now, sort of a male version of the movie Clueless. And my final year of Westminster Seminary was going by at the time at lightning speed. All of a sudden it was the month of May and I was staring at graduation and leaving the area, which would mean leaving Susan behind. And that thought finally made me begin to feel bad about leaving and the relationship and what I had done with it to this point. And then I observed a couple of other guys in the church or at Westminster who were interested in her. And one especially was pursuing her aggressively. And I began to be jealous and I was finally moved to get off my rear end and take some initiative. So I'm telling the story, not because I'm so proud of myself as a romantic, I continue to be amazed at my cluelessness, but here's the value of the illustration. The interest of these other guys made me realize her value in a special way. And it just may work this way that a time will come when Jewish people will look at what you and me, Gentiles like us, have done with their Hebrew scriptures and with their Messiah, and they will suddenly be moved to appreciate the worth of Christ. That's how it could work. At some point in the future, God will start to open the eyes of the Jewish people at how Gentiles for 2,000 years now have cherished their Hebrew scriptures and seen in them the promise of the suffering, dying, rising Messiah, and they will begin to grasp the great value of Jesus and turn to him. I invite you to just use your imagination of what that might be like. What if it happens in our time? What if you begin to experience more and more Jewish people coming into this church, suddenly becoming interested, becoming amazed that their Hebrew scriptures are so cherished and loved, and that in the midst of Christian churches, they may find what their whole destiny was all about? What an experience! And the point is that this is the kind of experience that goes way beyond any of the pitiful wish dreams that you and I might concoct for our lives in the church. Fourth point in verses 17 through 24. Let me read the last part of verse 20. Do not become proud, but fear... For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will 
he spare you. This is another step in the curing of our wish dreams. Pride gets in the way. We think we know so much better how the church should be. Do we really? We are discontent. We are convinced our vision for what the church should be is clearly better than anything that is around us now. Really? Paul warned the Gentile believers he was writing to in Rome that they should never conclude that there is something about them more fitting for God's favor than the Jews. And he warns us in the same way that we should never be arrogant, but fear. Do not become proud, but fear. Listen to what Bonhoeffer wrote, warning in similar language. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of church demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Our response should be humility and fear, lest we lose our grip on Christ and are cast off. And then number five, take in the revelation of God's purposes. Verse 25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul takes us, he says, into a mystery. Now, understand that when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not referring to something that is covered up, something shrouded, bleary, hard to penetrate into so you can't really understand it or see it. Neither is it something so out of this world that it cannot be understood. Rather, Paul uses the word mystery for something that only God can reveal to us and something that God has revealed to us so that we can know it. And here's the mystery. Israel's hardening is temporary. It will not last forever. In verse 28, he says, Israel is beloved for the sake of their forefathers Promises were made, starting with Abraham, about blessing through the nation that would come from him to the world. Paul sees this working out through the disobedience of Israel that led to the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. The disobedient Gentiles were shown mercy. Now, the disobedient Jews are in store for mercy. Verse 32 is the conclusion God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Consigned, it means being assigned, being given over to a certain place or condition. God gave the nations over, both Jews and Gentiles, given over to the helpless condition of disobedience, and there, which is where God wants them, so that he can invite them into his grace, there, right there, 
They will be shown mercy and will take it in and will love it. Now, Paul doesn't locate, at least from what I can determine, the revelation of this coming conversion of ethnic Israel at some point in time that we might expect. For example, many people would say, well, this must be something that's going to take place near the second coming of Christ. But look carefully when you have a chance at this entire chapter, and I can't see any place where there's a clear setting of this revival of Israel at any point in history, such as the end of world history. And what that might mean to me is we could see this conversion of Israel in our lifetimes, and it may be that hundreds of years take place after that, before the second coming of Christ. Who knows? It's an open question. But what is no question at all is that God's plan is to lead all nations, tribes, kindreds, tongues, races, lead them to his son, to mercy, to inclusion, to redemption. And so people from every nation will be monuments or trophies of the work of Jesus Christ. All will be for mercy. And when Paul looks at that, he turns from being so troubled with what he sees around him to say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how unscrutable his ways. He ends in doxology, in praise, and in worship. And that's the best place to end. That's the best way to replace our miserable wish dreams for the church with something that would be placed in our hearts by God. Bow in doxology as the last point for us in Romans 11. The experience of soul trouble is a frequent one, a common one, to the people of God. John Newton wrote a hymn that in many ways takes us through the same process as Romans 11. In that hymn, he writes this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. He was praying for growth in grace and understanding. He goes on, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. That's what we want when our souls are in trouble, that God would zap us quickly and give us peace. That's our prayer. But here's how Newton describes what happened. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. God, as a loving father, actually does this to us. The hymn goes on, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs 
I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. That's exactly the process of having our wish dreams smashed. The Lord crossed all the fair designs I schemed. And at last, Newton asks, what in the world is happening? Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes for earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Here's the thing about our schemes for earthly joy. They keep us from God. And the smashing of them causes us to find our all in him. As we struggle at times with our experience in the church, let's realize how pitifully small our wish dreams are compared with what God has in store for us. Let's remember how he preserves a remnant, people who don't bow the knee to Baal. And let's identify those people and encourage them and replace our wish dreams with doxology. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would seal the word to our hearts, that we would be stronger in faith for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.